This is a Rooster Teeth production. Charles, when Gen Z, the art director of Supergiant's video game Hades, designed all these titular godlike characters in the game, she specifically and intentionally made them all hot as hell. Of course. But which of these characters gets the Charles Pulliam Moore stamp of approval as the hottest one of the game? Everyone must know. I feel like everyone loves Zacharias, right? He's got the hair, he's got the heterochromia, he wants to go see his mom, my goodness. But honestly, it really is kind of all about Hades for me. Like that beard, that like beard <laughs> twist braid thing that he has, like it looks like a donut and it's ridiculous. But it's also just oh, like, I want to pet it. That's great. <laughs> I love the turn that took. And let's start the show. Let's do it. Welcome to The Real Canon, a new pod about the genre pop culture we all live, breathe, and help make happen in real time. I'm Charles Pulliam Moore, writer for io9 and social media agitator. And I'm John Reisinger, content creator and producer for Roost Teeth Productions in the internet's supportive dad. Uh, today, we're talking about pantheons in fiction, ranging from Neil Gaiman's American Gods all the way to the chthonic characters of Supergiant's game, Hades. Mythology's always been an important element of storytelling, but we want to dig into what it is that makes these kinds of stories work, and more of what there is to see from them. But before that, we're going to roll into cannon fodder, our quick breakdown of some of this week's most interesting entertainment news stories. First up this week, Ubisoft is developing a new Star Wars open world game. And then on top of that, Battlefront 2 goes free on Epic Games and gains a new audience. Everyone's hot about Star Wars games. Are you, Charles? I mean, I I am in theory. I love the idea of being able to like experience the world of Star Wars as like an active participant. Like that's the draw of the theme parks. And presumably that's Truth. the draw of these kinds of video games where you just sort of like get lost in them. But every time that I've tried to sort of um, every time that I've picked one up in the past, it's felt kind of like there are artificial boundaries there. For a while, it was, you know, the technical limitations of games that really only let you be but so much of a custom character. But now it feels almost sort of like the gaming, the gaming element of Star Wars is only just now beginning to dip its toe into that, like, what if the adventure, the story that you're participating in has truly nothing to do with what you're going to see in the movies or the television shows? What if it was just this own thing that was just for you? And that to me is really fascinating. It has been a while since we have had that kind of happen with Star Wars games. I agree. They've kind of focused on a little bit more of the uh, the typical canon of Star Wars games. Although, uh, what was the, uh, the Dark Souls-like game that just came out? Uh, Jedi, f what was it? I'm going to sound like an idiot right Fallen now. Fallen Order. Fall, Jedi Fallen Order. So Jedi Fallen yeah. Order was the most break off of that with uh, a little bit more of a, a new character. But that one was uh, plagued with technical difficulties and glitches and mm. kind of got people turned off from it. So yeah, you're, you're right there. They haven't hit the sweet spot of like new content and, uh, you know, a, a tech build that launches and has no problems from the get go. Yeah, it's funny that you talk about things that sort of have almost hit that sweet spot, but not just quite gotten there. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Muppets with you for a hot sec. News just broke that all five seasons of the original Muppet show are finally coming to Disney+. Plus. Um, that's including mm -hmm. seasons four and five, which initially were only available during their initial runs on television. Um, you know, the content isn't new, but this comes at a time when, you know, the Muppet 
IP is still beloved, but the newer projects that Disney's tried to put out have all sort of been received less than warmly. Mixed. You know, there was the <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was the first sort of like modern Muppet series that was trying to ape the humoristic styles of Modern Family in the Office, which like I feel like both of us really kind of dug. Like it I wasn't loved it. Yeah, it wasn't goofy, but it was just like, yo, no, like Kermit is a manager and he is always stressed out. And Piggy, as much as we, yeah, and Piggy's antics are going to cause problems, but it didn't necessarily tap into what people originally loved about the Muppet show. Um, More recently, there was Muppets Now, which is a much more chaotic sort of like YouTube generation series that, frankly, I do not see the appeal of. Um, And after all of this, you know, um, Disney, though there was an unannounced, rather unannounced Muppet project that is yet to come to fruition they are getting back to the basics with this, which I feel like might be the right move, you know? I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm going to binge it all myself. I'm going to binge it with my kids, whether they want to or not. And, and this is a, a Muppet house. We, we celebrate Muppets in this house. <laughs> uh, speaking of things that we love in this house, Thor Love and Thunder has started yeah. shooting this week, um, which uh, I'm very excited about this project, not only because of how much uh, Ragnarok just nailed it, but mm-hmm. also because the more that we keep learning about this project, the source material is the choicest of choice source material of uh, Lady Thor um, and and just the, the future of Thor's story. I'm, I'm excited. I'm glad they're shooting. I hope no one gets covid I feel like the energy, like the the energy of excitement that's around this, a lot of it has to do with that initial feeling of like wonder that people had when they saw what Taika Waititi's vision for Thor was. Um, mm-hmm. People forget that between um, the original Thor movie and the Dark World, Thor was this, you know, almost out of place, weird character that was overlaid in a lot of somewhat unnecessary drama and weight that felt just distinct from the rest of the MCU in a way that wasn't necessarily building towards the character becoming anything great and interesting, Mm. the large scheme of things. Um, Mm. But with Love and Thunder, it's like, no, like these movies can not only be grand and epic and a little bit self-serious, they can still be fun and vibrant. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is fantastic to see that with, you know, Taika returning with this, Marvel's like, yeah, do it again. Um, That's always the concern, (laughs) I think, particularly, you know, coming off of our conversations um, about Wonder Woman 1984, I think the, the the idea that's always in people's minds is like, all right, well, if the public has a really positive response to things, what does that next step look like? You know, success mm-hmm. is not necessarily guaranteed and everything about Love and Thunder. Um, just, you know, Natalie Portman coming out at San Diego Comic-Con with the hammer, it's like, ah, shit, okay. Yeah, like, do it, do it, let's see it. And yeah. every indication points to Marvel being really serious about this, which is great to see. Yeah, I, I'm I'm hoping that that Marvel and Disney give Taika the same amount of control and freedom as he did in Ragnarok, because I think that was part of what made Ragnarok the magical piece of uh, Technicolor nonsense that it was. <laughs> so that's uh that's the latest news in our mythological movie world but uh that's not the only thing going on in mythology mythology is rampant and so let's just jump into that with state of the canon. Yeah, so in prepping for this, we were just sort of shooting the shit and talking about what kind of games that we've been playing, um, you know, over the past year while we've all been at home. And of course, Hades came up. And once we'd sort of both stopped talking about how much, you know, we love the game and what our favorite, like, combinations of boons were, um, the conversation drifted towards, like, what is it about this in particular 
um, that makes us love this incarnation of these gods so much because yeah. as 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 fresh and innovative as they all feel part of like the fun of Hades is that you know that that varying degree of recognition that you have coming into it because these gods mm-hmm. are so much a part of our pop cultural landscape you know in general it's like when you see who's a good example um when you see Achilles for the first time it's like oh okay like what do you have to say and this game Whereas other um, popular incarnations of the character have sort of like tried to shy away from his very canonical love with Patroclus, Hades is like, oh no, like they're in love and they're here. Oh yeah. Um, And so we wanted to talk about what it is about stories in general, be they in video games, um, in movies, TV shows, or books involving, you know, sprawling pantheons, what it is about these stories that work sometimes and don't work in others and what it is that keeps us like coming back to them over and over again yeah it's definitely a genre that that is uh overlaid over so many pieces of media um but it does it in varying degrees of success and failure every time that you have a god of war you know reboot with cory barlog at the helm you also have like a clash of the titans reboot which no one cares about and right, no one's yeah. watching <laughs> and no one liked but somehow they made a sequel not really sure why wrath got made but you have like the good and the bad, but it's still like we're we're drawn to revisit these characters over and over again. Like we've mm. seen Zeus and Hades and Poseidon, you know, 15,000 times at this point. But, you know, a new game comes out, you know, Supergiant goes like, OK, we're going to make a new game and it's going to be set in Hades. And it just garners a, a, a rampant fan base that loves mm-hmm. it and and gets yeah specifically attached to the characters of it like the, supergiant made it out to make a, a a fun game that had repeatability with it and you know they were really focused on a lot of game mechanics specifically that they could pull off but i think what everyone raves about it uh is like the character design and the dialogue mm. and the uh, relational tension that's in the game. And and whether that be the tension between Zagreus and his father Hades or even the sexual tension between like the people that you might be romancing or what you just said right now, Achilles and, and uh, uh, Patroclus. Patroclus. Patroclus? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's definitely something worth trying to dissect of like, why does why do the instances where it work work? And I'm actually very specifically curious, like what your theory is on this, Charles? Hmm. So you bringing up the romance aspect of Hades, um, I want to touch on that because one of the things that I've come to really find interesting as I've played through the game, like, you know, my initial goal, like everyone's was like beat Hades, right? Get through the game and see what happens once you are able to escape from the underworld. You do that. Um, I personally spent a lot of time trying to find the hidden weapons, um, but I had sort of like missed that there was this whole almost like relationship game aspect to uh, the character side stories where you're sort of Mm -hmm. um, flitting in and out of their lives um, as Mm -hmm. a part of, you know, the drama that's going on. It isn't, uh, you know, calling it a romance simulator is, you know, that's a little generous, but I think it's that first, not first person, it's that hands-on interactiveness as opposed to you just having a story read to you, right? So it's Mm -hmm. not just that um, you are, reading an epic poem about the love between two characters, right? 
um, you are quite actively, as you are running through hell and murdering all kinds of shades and monsters that are trying to kill you, you take a quick breather and you offer up some, you know, some ambrosia to a friend and you happen to overhear that they're having relationship problems. It, mm -hmm. in a very active way, is recreating, like, a, rather creating a dynamic experience for you to sort of have with these characters in a way that, you know, other forms of media don't always um, it makes it easier for you to, you know, project onto them, um, mm -hmm. which is really great. And obviously just through the characters writing, it almost feels as if that's very much what Supergiant wanted to be the case. Which, which I think you, you nailed on the head of what, uh, personally the, the conclusion I came to when thinking about these games or, or these, these instances of, you know, mythological fictional depiction, like the reason why we like them is that because even though this is, you know, these are the ongoing stories of super rich superheroes that live on high above us all. Um, these all, these stories always come down to familial drama mm. and relational, you know, uh, distress. And that's something that everybody can connect with. I mean, to keep talking about uh, another instance that worked really well, uh, the reboot of God of War, mm. uh, the, the reason why it was written the way it was with it being about Kratos and his son, everything like that, was that uh, Corey himself, the director of the game, he had a new son and he really felt a deep connection to this story right, of right, a right. father and a son uh, teaching and learning from each other because the game is about, you know, Kratos uh, teaching uh, Atreus about how to be a god, but it's about Atreus teaching Kratos again about his humanity. Mm. And those are all things that, that like, like who doesn't have daddy issues? Yo, like who doesn't? <laughs> like, yo, we all, we all got them to a degree. And so that's where everybody goes, mm, I feel that. Like, that's why everyone calls it, you know, dad of wars. Cause it's all about that daddy <laughs> stuff. And even Hades does that itself. Like it's got daddy issues with Zagreus and Hades and even, and even issues with his stepmom and his real mm -hmm, mom and everything mm -hmm. like that. Um, and so these stories are stories that we can connect with and and and, and we like the, the i think the spectacle of it all you know who mm. doesn't like seeing the gods like showing off and throwing lightning and stuff all around but at the heart of it just like in like the mcu movies you know there's the spectacle but the heart of it it's about the relationships and the struggle that we can connect with that that is almost universal and when it's written and executed well like in hades the way that you were describing it 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 resonates with more than just even initial audience it, it kind of permeates out into the whole zeitgeist of everything i want to touch on something that's really important and interesting about what you just said because uh, when it comes to the family drama tip that's literally the source material you know that is that is what we are accustomed to hearing and seeing these gods get involved in the family drama mm -hmm. who killed whose wife who is whose mm -hmm. secret son that kind of drama mm -hmm. um Something that I did want to dig into, though, you brought up um, the fan response and how the fan, this isn't necessarily the case with Hades because the fan response came after the game was already out. Um, but so often with these really famous stories involving characters, uh, rather God characters getting into mm -hmm. family dramas, um, there are these passionate fandoms built up around them that sort of really drive the push for adaptations. I'm thinking right mm -hmm. now specifically of Neil Gaiman's American Gods. Um, which just started its third season on Stars, And, you know, if you look back at it, if you look back at the, the history of the show, 
Um, it has been uh, a cult favorite for years. Um, the book was originally published in 2001 um, and quickly gained a rather large following of people who latched on to its story of a man who grew up essentially without an identity, suddenly being plunged into this very dramatic, again, family story that happens to involve mm-hmm. a Ragnarok that he, you know, was entirely unaware of. Um, after a series of ridiculous production delays and being stuck in production hell, the show finally finds a home on stars and it debuts to a lot of acclaim. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's groundbreaking. It's trying to tap into all of these really potent issues about what it means to be an immigrant in America, what it means to be black in America, what it means to live within a surveillance state. Um, and as it goes forward, it's like, all right, cool. Like what's going to happen? Where is this story going to go? But then more behind the scenes drama starts to plague the show's production and it slowly starts to fall apart in the fandom mm. really drifts away in a way that was fascinating. Because when I say that, I mean, like you, you know how Neil Gaiman fans are. They're intense. You know, they are people yes. who will follow this man to the end of the earth. But with American Gods, it was like as soon as the show began to falter, all of that energy, the fandom really sort of fell to the wayside in a way that I don't know that you always see with things like this. And it made me think to myself, well, what it is, what is it about American Gods, the show that made the people who wanted to see these characters ultimately give up on it? And I think that with the stars adaptation in particular, the obvious answer is like, well, you lost Brian Fuller, you know, we, you lost, you lost that fan base. You lost that vision. Yeah. You, you lost, you lost a lot of the, that creative uh, momentum that came from, uh, you know, a, a showrunner like that. And I, Honestly, like the story itself of how what they adapted and the pacing that they took with the show is what got me to my interest to dither itself. Like I, I watched season one. Uh, I loved it. It's a beautiful spectacle. It's it's uh, it's got plenty of drama. It's got plenty of queerness, which I adore. Mm. And but it didn't grab me in the end and and i don't know if it's because they just they didn't give me enough to focus on with the main character that it kind of it kind of splintered too much and was holding back too much mystery in its first season Mm. um, because i don't know if it knew exactly where it wanted to go with its second season or if it was going to get a second season you just never know with the development of these projects but it definitely dithered away and i don't really think american gods you know the show from stars is really going to be remembered very much in the long history of these mythological adaptations as opposed to other versions of it you know it's like our you know people are going to remember disney's hercules whether you mm, like it or not and people are going to remember kevin sorbo's hercules whether you like it or not but <laughs> uh, uh but you know, I I don't think American Gods. I think American Gods just wasn't given its chance to really shine, and and that is 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 just odd considering what the potential it had. Anyone who has read the novel itself, I think, might find it really fascinating that ultimately Gaiman's novel is building towards a spin on a Ragnarok, something that we are all keenly aware of because of what's in our pop culture right now. Everyone loves Thor Ragnarok. Everyone's sort of interested to see what God of War is going to do with it. And I wonder whether, to your point, whether just telegraphing more of that would have been the thing to really sort of keep people hooked. Yeah. Um, with Thor Ragnarok, it's it's almost not trying, it's not trying to hide the fact that the end of the world is the point, you know? It's all about how you get 
to that point and what it is yeah. that happens to those characters over you know over the course of the story that is going to be the thing that makes us remember it but american gods wanted to play the cards a little close to its chest you know what i think a lot of it also has to do with this little sweet spot that you have to play with these with these you know mythology genre pieces is that people like it when you know uh visionary creators can take these stories and adapt them a little bit to their own story i mean zagreus zagreus himself and hades is just a footnote um from the uh story of the greek gods that most people right. have heard of he's, he's he's a line from a poem and uh but you know the super giant guys were like hey we can kind of like we can we can expand this and we can make the whole game about this but you then also have to pepper in enough familiarity that people go oh i get that it's like the same with uh uh, uh the god of war adaptation where they they took a lot of uh creative liberties by taking a lot of norse mythology and mixing kratos with it but it's enough where you know a lot of people are excited about the sequel you know after the the the, the first reboot because they're like okay i like that you teased thor in the first one his sons mm -hmm. are in it you fight them and, and you and you know about that uh and and kratos himself was was like kind of a, a character you could at least connect with because people knew who he was but everyone's like oh i know what ragnarok is now and i know who thor is and i want to see what kratos is going to do with that and so that's why you've got this excitement still going beyond the, even just this first success where american gods kept a lot of cards i think close to its chest and also uh you know it had the spectacle of a visionary person behind it but like you said they lost brian fuller who knows where it could go after that when someone else has to pick up the pieces you mm -hmm. lose steam you um you don't you already have like a difficulty with churn on on a extra service like stars and so if you don't give people a major reason why they're going to return to the show um and 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 enjoy themselves you're going to lose your your audience and mm -hmm. you know that's i think that's that's part of these these stories of these mythological characters is that people are ready to latch on if you do a good job but they will move on to the next one if you if you kind of like stumble you know if you pull a clash of titans we're gonna go wait for the next one to come out and just one last thing I wanted to say about Hades in particular that I think is important to keep in mind about all of these stories. It's not just the remixing that makes its story work. It is the sort of way that you can infer that not only does this, not only was the Supergiant team keenly aware of all of the source material involving the characters in the game, um, it was willing to amplify certain elements and not erase others that sort of seemed antagonistic. Whenever you as Zagreus happen to interact with Dionysus, it's really interesting, you know, because depending on the text, Zagreus and Dionysus are often the same person. Um, but rather mm. than trying to avoid that, Hades leans into this idea that, like, they just happen to get along, or Dionysus is really fond um, of Zagreus. And I think yeah. it's that not just discarding things as the remixing is happening, but it's finding ways to weave them into the story and weave them into characters' personalities that makes them endearing to us. The thing that comes to mind most immediately for me is The Wicked and the Divine, um, Jamie McKelvey and Kieran Gillen's book. That really is just this, it's this wild story that's about a bunch of young people becoming pop stars, but it's also them inhabiting the, you know, the identities of gods from across multiple pantheons. Even though yes. most of them have nothing to do with, with each other, traditionally, it's in each of their personalities, you can see the elements of those gods. 
that have been sat with and considered and really mm-hmm. sort of worked into each character in a way that isn't just to be like, haha, you will recognize this aspect of Amaterasu. It's like, no, no, no. But what does that mean for this person as a whole? Yeah, yeah. And and even Marvel does that in the comics plenty of times where, uh, you know, granted, they focus very heavily on the Norse pantheon, and they'll dabble in the Greek pantheon. Hercules is a character is a, you know, a heroic character in the Marvel comics, and everything like that. And he he interacts with other, you know, deities from the Greek pantheon. But all the pantheons do have like interaction at some point in the Marvel comics, but that that mixes well, because uh, those, you know, it's it's just like uh, different families, you know, in a neighborhood. Everyone always has, you know, the the problem middle child and the overbearing father and you know the uh, the invasive mother. And so there's this repeatable relatability with these uh, deities across whatever pantheon that people can uh, mix with and connect with. Uh, I actually have a question for you, Charles, because. Yeah. The first time we ever talked about Hades, I had been playing it for a bit, and I had stayed away from Hades mostly from a gaming aspect because it is a roguelite dungeon crawler, and mm-hmm. those have never—that's never been a genre that I personally, as a gamer, have you know uh, gravitated towards. But people were so hot and heavy about this game, yeah. and then enough of my close friends were playing it. I watched my buddy James do a stream on it once. I finally went like, "Oh, that looks actually like fun, repeatable, simple gameplay," and. So I'll check it out. And obviously, you know, you you there's repeat game ability with it where you just want to keep trying over and over again, getting different boons, trying different loadouts. And like it's fun, it's visual, it's it's a good game in itself, but you get extra interested in yeah. the take that these you know these creators uh, uh you know uh shot at these characters and that's what grabs you however you charles first time we ever talked about it you <laughs> were turned off by hades talk to me about that yes you were very opinionated about it <laughs> i was and i still which am, is fine which is good i love it <laughs> um yeah so like you i was never really a fan of roguelike games um so much so that i did myself the disservice of never actually looking up what they were um, I had just really sort of seen, you know, you see GIFs and you see screenshots and it's like, oh, that's not for me. Um, I was on yeah. YouTube the other day and I was actually seeing like a highlight reel of uh, images from Hades. And I could recall what it, what my initial impression of Hades was. And it is that mm. it visually does read as a very chaotic game. There are certain um, encounters where you will enter the dungeon and you are swarmed by a flock of witches that, you know, mm-hmm. fling spells at you and then you immediately start you know depending on let's say you have the gun equipped you start shooting and it's just chaos everywhere yeah particle effects filling your entire screen yeah it's ridiculous um but there is this way once you learn the rhythm of the game once you learn what the boons do individually how they stack with one another that really ends up making gameplay this oddly relaxing, almost meditative experience. Um, It's not quite a rhythm game, but there is a rhythm aspect to it that is, goodness, it's not constant because it's constantly changing. But you, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're in that, when you're in that headspace, it just makes sense. Um, It's jazz. It, oh God, don't do that. Don't, absolutely But I will say there is this there is this oddly almost secretive quiet meditative aspect to the game as a whole because once you sort of have the initial cooldown period after you've cleared a dungeon you take the boon you know you have a chance to walk around it and really drink in 
just how lush the environment is. Mm. Um, what initially, <laughs> funnily enough, what initially led to me um, picking up Hades after being a contrarian, being like, well, I'm not going to play because everybody likes it. Um, <laughs> I, I had just seen so many um, images and clips of cyberpunk, ironically, that mm. uh, were showing off the glitches and how ridiculous it was. And, you know, what was wild about those screen grabs was you could see, you know, you could see the, the, the effort that had gone into trying to realize these gorgeous, lush worlds, but then the glitches just made it all look ridiculous. So I was yeah. like, oh, let's pick up something that's more visually simple that I know for a fact is just going to run on my Switch <laughs> if I'm not connected to the internet and it's not going to need anything. Um, mm -hmm. And I was truly blown away when I first wandered not towards where you are supposed to, to move deeper, or rather, mm -hmm. I guess you're moving up, you know, more towards the surface. There are these spots in um, certain dungeons where you can push yourself to the edge and the camera moves with you farther yeah. off so that you get a really big picture view of what Elysium looks like, for example. And it's like, holy shit, this is gorgeous and it's almost like yeah. um well, I, after i took a few dozen screenshots it's like charles it's not going anywhere nothing's gonna come attack me. just chill out for a second and it's like oh yeah like that's that's cool not only is it cool but it does feel very much like a part of zagreus's story right once he has come out of the battle and he's like oh is this all worth it he looks up and he's like maybe 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 this isn't all as bad as i've made it out to be that's another that's another element I think of you know not to not to completely ignore it but the visual drinkability of this genre um, is something that everybody really loves to partake in. I mean, mm. I, I I joke about uh, Disney's Hercules, which I actually really love, but it's a beautiful, colorful, uh, uh, originally designed looking film, and 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 I think that's part of the draw for it, along with you know the story and the songs and the characters and like that. But Hades is a beautiful game. I called it out at the top that Gen Z, the creative director for Supergiant, like she has an amazing style and mm. and you know her her leadership of whatever their small team that was part of the the visual direction of the game um is top tier i i just like I, I i want her to draw anything like get her on a comic book get her in anything that we can just keep having her take her take on these characters uh i mean there's there's a reason why everyone is so for lack of a better term horny for all these characters <laughs> is that it's that you just can't help but stare at each and every one of them and look at all the details of their of their clothing their facial features mm -hmm, everything mm -hmm. so yeah like that that grabs you in the game whether you want to or not while you're playing and just even after you've stopped playing i think the true mark of greatness in art is when you can actively see it inspiring other people um mm. when things that come out to much acclaim come out there's always fan art obviously right but what's really sort of wild to see about the Hades fandom in particular is that almost immediately you saw this big push of fan art that recast the gods into a different setting. And yet in that recasting, it was all done with a very knowing or a more knowing understanding of who those gods were. It was almost as mm -hmm. if people were trying to emulate Supergiant's creative process of distilling the essential elements of these characters and then reworking them into visual ideas that we could read. Yes. So there's like a meme that I love. It's 
<laughs> it's Artemis running, and it's like I'm going running in the woods with a pack of wild lesbians, and it's like yeah, 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 like that's totally her energy, and I love it, and I want that on a T-shirt, and it totally makes sense, and it's 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 this fantastic thing that is just as much. It's a blend of people's inherent humor, but it's a reflection of how Hades as a whole just really hits people right in the heart. Yes. I, uh, part of my job, daytime job, and even my, my little side gig on Twitch is I, I stream a lot of video games. And so part of streaming is interaction with chat and that can, you know, ebb and flow depending on what game you're playing and how you're playing it. But with Hades, I loved how, almost kind of like how when playing Stardew Valley, people are so opinionated on mm. what relationships you work on, who you're romancing, who they really gravitate towards. And that in this whole big old, you know, we're, our show's called The Real Canon. And, and that canonical interaction from the fan base makes your experience with the game even more rich. And and it even makes me even more opinionated on my choices. Whereas in a vacuum, I might be, you know, a little more blase about my choices and who I romance. But in talking with a bunch of people who also are participating in this narrative, you can get a bit more fiery about it and be like, no, you might want to be, you know, romancing Dusa. I want to go after this little archangel little boy over here. He cute, <laughs> you know, and and that that, uh, you know, is is just a bonus aspect of, I think, uh, a, a game like this that executes so well. I think something that video games in particular have over other forms of storytelling um, is that interactivity. Because the joke beneath all of it, right, is like, well, you don't know this video game character, but you, a god, your life is being controlled by a moral right now. You know, there is that, mm-hmm. that mind-fuckiness to it almost. Whenever mortals come up in conversation in Hades part of your mind goes to like, oh, those poor shades who are just wandering around watching this all happen or cheering in the stands. Um, mm-hmm. But then there's you who are, you know, you are actively participating in and enthralled by what's happening with the gods in a way that I think is sometimes lost um, when you read the classics and you hear about the terrible things that the gods do to mortals. And mm. you're like, why would the mortals ever fuck with them? Like, yeah, you get why they worship them because they do it for fear of death. But it's like, why would anyone ever be a god's consort? And it's like, no, no, they truly were an entertaining bunch of weirdos. You know, terrifying mm-hmm. though they may be, everyone loves the story about like, yo, remember that time that we ran up on Zeus and he was like a goose or some shit? Wild, truly wild. And that's, that's yes. just like the gossip of the time. Um, and this what? is just a few steps removed. This is a way of tapping into like that same kind of idea. It's so funny. I think I think you you nailed it there. Where it's kind of sometimes with these mythological stories, it's a little bit of the um, the tone you take with them can also be the win or the loss. Uh, I think one of my favorite iterations of even just reading the old stories of Greek mythology was mm. listening to Stephen Fry do his audiobook for his book, uh, Mythos, and something there was something very extra special about listening to Stephen Fry you know, give his emotional take on these characters and, you know, read the story of the birth of uh, uh, Apollo and all of that. Uh, or, or his one of my favorites was him reading about the birth of Hermes and that whole story of Hermes is uh, cleverness mm. and like that. And it's so much more cheeky and, and and charming with Stephen Fry's flair that he adds to anything that he, you know, speaks of. Uh but yeah, it's it's a little bit yeah, and, and and that's even in Hades. Hades has the silliness and the the you know easily enjoyability that you want from uh you know a media experience like that. 
Yeah, I had a similar experience over the summer. Um, after hearing about it nonstop from all my friends, I finally picked up Madeline Miller's Song of Achilles. Um, it is, mm. you know, a a retelling of their song, their story. It was her first book that she then followed up with Circe, um, a book about that particular goddess. And what, you know, what initially pulled me into it, I was in the mood, you know, um, for some real dramatic queer romance. Um, mm. But what immediately became clear as I got into it was the time that she had spent to really giving you a sense of what the gods' motivations were, like what their really petty motivations are, not necessarily the big overarching things that define epic tales in general, you know, not just the war and the great battles where you see the gods' fates come into play and really make you understand why the mortals try to curry their favor, just Mm -hmm. the sort of like ugly, very human, vindictive elements of characters um, like Patroclus and like Achilles, the things that lurk in their hearts. And you're, I'm sitting there reading this and it's like, truly, if this had been the kind of, if these had been the kinds of characterizations of these deities that I'd read about in school when I was younger, I would have, <laughs> I'm not going to sit up here and lie and say that I didn't like mythologies before, but I would have had a much more intense passion about them. Yeah, I, th- I think with the, uh, in in kind of summation of a lot of these thoughts, it's that these these mythological characters are a palette that we all find easy easy connectivity with in mm. in, in repeat iterations of it, um, and all we're you know we're waiting just each time that these are utilized for media, whether it be TV, movie, or games, just to be done with care and flair um and if that's you know executed properly you know people are gonna we're gonna keep getting we're gonna keep gravitating towards these characters and i i think that's that's fun i like that i I keep looking forward to the next new version just like i'm looking forward to you know thor love and thunder like because ragnarok (laughs) was just so beautiful it's like all right do it again let's do let let's keep repeat let's keep visiting these these crazy gods and what antics they're up to yeah well shall we move on to some head cannons and wrap up this show Head cannons, let's do it, man. All right, I have a specific question for our head cannons this week, and that is, um, and uh, I'd love to hear in the comments uh, what the the audience's uh, answer is. If you want to join us on our social media at, uh, at Real Cannon Pod, love to hear your thoughts on what is the mythological tale that hasn't gotten its fair share of the spotlight you think is ready for an adaptation. I mean, for me personally, I, <laughs> I've been on this tip for a while, but I have always wanted to see a big, brassy, nuanced, deep and rich depiction of the Orisha, of the Yoruba religion. Um, they're West mm. African, you know, they are a West African pantheon um, yeah, of, goodness, interrelated family members who are embodiments of various aspects of reality, who, you know, like the deities of other pantheons, um, get involved in petty squabbles and quarrels. Um, But theirs are myths that I grew up with um, and are very near and dear to me. And things that I have seen only alluded to very sort of like casually. I feel like there were, there was a very specific contingent of people who knew what the Overwatch character Orisha was. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, I think there's an X in there, which is sometimes what you see in variations of the words felt and it's like that's like a nod in a particular you know franchise but i want to see like a full-on like let's get into the intricacies of their lives i think um i mean like honestly i want it in 80s form but it would be fantastic to see it realized uh you know in any form 
Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go. I, I love that answer. And so I'll go a little bit uh, closer to home of maybe what uh, has been touched upon but been ignored. I've always loved the character Hephaestus from uh, Greek mythology, mm-hmm. but I've always felt like he is a side note in any story he doesn't show up really much in these shows or these games Mm. or these movies and i i I love this idea of this you know this this tinkerer who was the disfigured you know unwanted son um of you know uh hera basically hera is the one who threw him off olympus right i believe so but I I I, li- I like his character. I, I I find his character interesting. But he's he's not really the lead of anything ever. And so I'd be curious if someone could shine a spotlight and make him the protagonist of something. I don't really know where specifically to take him, other than like I like his little tinkering abilities and, and his uh, uh, quiet uh, personality. But uh, yeah, I kind of want to see some Hephaestus. All right, fantastic. Well. That's it for uh, this episode of The Real Canon. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really enjoying making this show, and we hope you're enjoying listening to it. If you are enjoying it, then I uh, encourage you to subscribe uh, and continue to join us each week with a new specific topic. Um, Also, a great way to show support for the podcast is by writing a review. That is the first and foremost way you can help support it and get eyeballs onto this show, which will continue to make this a healthy endeavor for us. Definitely, and we want to stay in contact with you. So follow us on our Twitter at RealCanonPod. Share your hand cannons with us, send us memes, you know, we'll be hanging out. But as always, join us next week for more of The Real Canon. Bye.